34. Tie on like bread in the hands of a child. 1189. Savage he is who saves himself. 1190. We ought not to desire the impossible. Footnote, the writing of this note, which is exceedingly minute, is reproduced in facsimile on place XLI number 5 above the first diagram. 1191. Ask counsel of him who rules himself well. Justice requires power, insight, and will, and it resembles the queen bee. He who does not punish evil commands it to be done. He who takes the snake by the tail will presently be bitten by it. The grave will fall in upon him who digs it. 1192. The man who does not restrain wantonness, allies himself with beasts. You can have no dominion greater or less than that over yourself. He who thinks little, errs much. It is easier to contend with evil at the first than at the last. No counsel is more loyal than that given on ships which are in peril. He may expect loss who acts on the advice of an inexperienced youth. 1193. Where there is most feeling, there is the greatest martyrdom, a great martyr. 1194. The memory of benefits is a frail defense against ingratitude. Reprove your friend in secret and praise him openly. Be not false about the past. 1195. A simile for patience. Patience serves us against insults precisely as clothes do against the cold. For if you multiply your garments as the cold increases, that cold cannot hurt you. In the same way increase your patience under great offenses, and they cannot hurt your feelings. 1196. To speak well of a base man is much the same as speaking ill of a good man. 1197. Envy wounds with false accusations, that is with detraction, a thing which scares virtue. 1198. We are deceived by promises and time disappoints us. Footnote 2. The rest of this passage may be rendered in various ways, but none of them give a satisfactory meaning. 1199. Fear arises sooner than anything else. 1200. Just as courage imperils life, fear protects it. Threats alone are the weapons of the threatened man. Wherever good fortune enters, envy lays siege to the place and attacks it, and when it departs, Sorrow and repentance remain behind. He who walks straight rarely falls. It is bad if you praise, and worse if you reprove a thing. I mean, if you do not understand the matter well, it is ill to praise, and worse to reprimand in matters that you do not understand. 1201. Words which do not satisfy the ear of the hearer weary him or vex him, and the symptoms of this you will often see in such hearers in their frequent yawns, you therefore who speak before men whose good will you desire, when you see such an excess of fatigue, abridge your speech, or change your discourse, and if you do otherwise, then instead of the favor you desire, you will get dislike and hostility, and if you would see in what a man takes pleasure, without hearing him speak, change the subject of your discourse in talking to him, and when you presently see him intent, without yawning or wrinkling his brow or other actions of various kinds, you may be certain that the matter of which you are speaking is such as is agreeable to him and see. 1202. The lover is moved by the beloved object as the senses are by sensible objects, and they unite and become one and the same thing. The work is the first thing born of this union, if the thing loved is base the lover becomes base. When the thing taken into a union is perfectly adapted to that which receives it, the result is delight and pleasure and satisfaction. When that which loves is united to the thing beloved it can rest there, when the burden is laid down it finds rest there. Politics 1203, 1204, 1203. There will be eternal fame also for the inhabitants of that town, constructed and enlarged by him. All communities obey and are led by their magnates, 
and these magnates ally themselves with the lords and subjugate them into ways, either by consanguinity, or by fortune, by consanguinity, when their children are, as it were, hostages, and a security and pledge of their suspected fidelity, by property. When you make each of these build a house or two inside your city which may yield some revenue and he shall have dot, ten towns, five thousand houses with thirty thousand inhabitants, and you will disperse this great congregation of people which stand like goats one behind the other, filling every place with fetid smells and sowing seeds of pestilence and death, and the city will gain beauty worthy of its name and to you it will be useful by its revenues, and the eternal fame of its aggrandizement. 1204 to preserve nature's chiefest boon, that is freedom, I can find means of offense and defense, when it is assailed by ambitious tyrants, and first I will speak of the situation of the walls, and also I shall show how communities can maintain their good and just lords, I I I, polemics, speculation, against speculators 1205, 1206, 1205-0, oh, speculators on things, Boast not of knowing the things that nature ordinarily brings about, but rejoice if you know the end of those things which you yourself devise. 1206. Oh! Speculators on perpetual motion how many vain projects of the like character you have created. Go and be the companions of the searchers for gold. Footnote, another short passage in this I referring also to speculators, is given by Libri Hist. De Sciences Math. I I I. 228. Sick boy speculatory non vi fidate deliator ice and a soul call imaginationi voluto farsi interpreti trala natra ilomo. Ma sol di quelli che non coesioni della natra. Ma coli effetti del sua spirienz and o esercitati i loro ingegni. Against alchemists 1207, 1208, 1207. The false interpreters of nature declare that quicksilver is the common seed of every metal. Not remembering that nature varies the seed according to the variety of the things she desires to produce in the world. 1208. And many have made a trade of delusions and false miracles, deceiving the stupid multitude, against friars. 1209. Pharisees that is to say, friars, against writers of epitomies. 1210. Abbreviators to harm to knowledge and to love, seeing that the love of anything is the offspring of this knowledge the love being the more fervent in proportion as the knowledge is more certain, and this certainty is born of a complete knowledge of all the parts, which, when combined, compose the totality of the thing which ought to be loved, of what use then is he who abridges the details of those matters of which he professes to give thorough information, while he leaves behind the chief part of the things of which the whole is composed, it is true that impatience, the mother of stupidity, praises brevity, as if such persons had not life long enough to serve them to acquire a complete knowledge of one single subject, such as the human body, and then they want to comprehend the mind of God in which the universe is included, weighing it minutely and mincing it into infinite parts, as if they had to dissect it. Oh, human stupidity, do you not perceive that, though you have been with yourself all your life, you are not yet aware of the thing you possess most of, that is of your folly, and then, with the crowd of sophists, you deceive yourselves and others, despising the mathematical sciences, in which truth dwells and the knowledge of the things included in them, and then you occupy yourself with miracles, and write that you possess information of those things of which the human mind is incapable and which cannot be proved by any instance from nature, and you fancy you have wrought miracles when you spoil a work of some speculative mind, 
and do not perceive that you are falling into the same error as that of a man who strips a tree of the ornament of its branches covered with leaves mingled with the scented blossoms or fruit. Footnote 48, gives Theno. Marcus Junian is Justinus, a Roman historian of the second century, who compiled an epitome from the general history written by Trobus Pompeius, who lived in the time of Augustus. The work of the latter writer no longer exists, as Justinus did, in abridging the histories written by Trobus Pompeius, who had written in an ornate style all the word or the deeds of his forefathers, full of the most admirable and ornamental passages, and so composed of all the work word or the only of those impatient spirits, who fancy they are losing as much time as that which they employ usefully in studying the works of nature and the deeds of men, but these may remain in company of beasts, among their associates should be dogs and other animals full of rapine and they may hunt with them after, and then follow helpless beasts, which in time of great snows come near to your houses asking alms as from their master, on spirits 12 11 12 13, 12 11, all mathematicians shed light on this error, the spirit has no voice, because where there is a voice there is a body, and where there is a body space is occupied, and this prevents the eye from seeing what is placed behind that space, hence the surrounding air is filled by the body, that is by its image, 12-12, there can be no voice where there is no motion or percussion of the air, there can be no percussion of the air where there is no instrument, there can be no instrument without a body, and this being so, a spirit can have neither voice, nor form, nor strength, and if it were to assume a body it could not penetrate nor enter where the passages are closed, and if anyone should say that by air, compressed and compacted together, a spirit may take bodies of various forms and by this means speak and move with strength to him I reply that when there are neither nerves nor bones there can be no force exercised in any kind of movement made by such imaginary spirits, beware of the teaching of these speculators, because their reasoning is not confirmed by experience. 1213 of all human opinions that is to be reputed the most foolish which deals with the belief in necromancy, the sister of alchemy, which gives birth to simple and natural things, but it is all the more worthy of reprehension in alchemy, because it brings forth nothing but what is like itself, that island lives, this does not happen in alchemy which deals with simple products of nature and whose function cannot be exercised by nature itself, because it has no organic instruments with which it can work as men do by means of their hands, who have produced, for instance, glass and sea. But this necromancy the flag and flying banner, blown by the winds, is the guide of the stupid crowd which is constantly witness to the dazzling and endless effects of this art, and there are books full, declaring that enchantments and spirits can work and speak without tongues and without organic instruments without which it is impossible to speak and can carry heaviest weights and raise storms and rain and that men can be turned into cats and wolves and other beasts. Although indeed it is those who affirm these things who first became beasts. And surely if this necromancy did exist, as is believed by small wits, there is nothing on the earth that would be of so much importance alike for the detriment and service of men. If it were true that there were in such an art a power to disturb the calm serenity of the air, converting it into darkness and making coruscations or wines, with terrific thunder and lightnings rushing through the darkness, and with violent storms overthrowing high buildings and rooting up forests, and thus to oppose armies, crushing and annihilating them, and, besides these frightful storms may deprive the peasants of the reward of their laborers. Now what kind of warfare is there to hurt the enemy so much as to deprive him of the harvest? What naval warfare could be compared with this? 
I say, the man who has power to command the winds and to make ruinous scales by which any fleet may be submerged, surely a man who could command such violent forces would be lord of the nations, and no human ingenuity could resist his crushing force. The hidden treasures and gems reposing in the body of the earth would all be made manifest to him. No lot nor fortress, though impregnable, would be able to save any one against the will of the necromancer. He would have himself carried through the air from east to west and through all the opposite sides of the universe. But why should I enlarge further upon this? What is there that could not be done by such a craftsman? Almost nothing, except to escape death. Hereby I have explained in part the mischief and the usefulness contained in this art, if it is real, and if it is real why has it not remained among men who desire it so much, having nothing to do with any deity, for I know that there are numberless people who would, to satisfy a whim, destroy God and all the universe, and if this necromancy, being, as it were, so necessary to men, has not been left among them, it can never have existed, nor will it ever exist according to the definition of the spirit, which is invisible in substance, for within the elements there are no incorporate things, because where there is no body, there is a vacuum, and no vacuum can exist in the elements because it would be immediately filled up. Turn over, 1214, of spirits, we have said, on the other side of this page, that the definition of a spirit is a power conjoined to a body, because it cannot move of its own accord, nor can it have any kind of motion in space, and if you were to say that it moves itself, this cannot be within the elements, for, if the spirit is an incorporeal quantity, this quantity is called a vacuum, and a vacuum does not exist in nature, and granting that one word are formed, it would be immediately filled up by the rushing in of the element in which the vacuum had been generated, therefore, from the definition of weight, which is this gravity is an accidental power, created by one element being drawn to or suspended in another it follows that an element, not weighing anything compared with itself, has weight in the element above it and lighter than it, as we see that the parts of water have no gravity or levity compared with other water, but if you draw it up into the air, then it would acquire weight, and if you were to draw the air beneath the water then the water which remains above this air would acquire weight, which weight could not sustain itself by itself, once collapse is inevitable, and this happens in water, wherever the vacuum may be in this water it will fall in, and this would happen with a spirit amid the elements where it would continuously generate a vacuum in whatever element it might find itself, whence it would be inevitable that it should be constantly flying towards the sky until it had quitted these elements. As to whether a spirit has a body amid the elements, we have proved that a spirit cannot exist of itself amid the elements without a body, nor can it move of itself by voluntary motion unless it be to rise upwards. But now we will say how such a spirit taking an aerial body would be inevitably melt into air, because if it remained united, it would be separated and fall to form a vacuum, as is said above, therefore it is inevitable, if it is to be able to remain suspended in the air, that it should absorb a certain quantity of air, and if it were mingled with the air, two difficulties arise, that is to say, it must rarefy that portion of the air with which it mingles, and for this cause the rarefied air must fly up of itself and will not remain among the air that is heavier than itself, and besides this the subtle spiritual essence, disunites itself, and its nature is modified, by which that nature loses some of its first virtue, added to these there is a third difficulty, and this is that such a body formed of air assumed by the spirits is exposed to the penetrating winds, which are incessantly sundering and dispersing the united portions of the air, 
revolving and whirling amidst the rest of the atmosphere, therefore the spirit which is infused in this 1215, air would be dismembered or rent and broken up with the rending of the air into which it was incorporated. As to whether the spirit, having taken this body of air, can move of itself though or not, it is impossible that the spirit infused into a certain quantity of air, should move this air, and this is proved by the above passage where it is said, the spirit rarefies that portion of the air in which it incorporates itself, therefore this air will rise high above the other air and there will be a motion of the air caused by its lightness and not by a voluntary movement of the spirit, and if this air is encountered by the wind, according to the third of this, the air will be moved by the wind and not by the spirit incorporated in it, as to whether the spirit can speak or not, in order to prove whether the spirit can speak or not, it is necessary in the first place to define what a voice is and how it is generated, and we will say that the voice island as it were, the movement of air in friction against a dense body, or a dense body in friction against the air, which is the same thing, and this friction of the dense and the rare condenses the rare and causes resistance, again, the rare, when in swift motion, and the rare in slow motion condense each other when they come in contact and make a noise and very great uproar, and the sound or murmur made by the rare moving through the rare with only moderate swiftness, like a great flame generating noises in the air, and the tremendous uproar made by the rare mingling with the rare, and when that air which is both swift and rare rushes into that which is itself rare and in motion, it is like the flame of fire which issues from a big gun and striking against the air, and again when a flame issues from the cloud, there is a concussion in the air as the bolt is generated. Therefore we may say that the spirit cannot produce a voice without movement of the air, and air in it there is none, nor can it emit what it has not, and if desires to move that air in which it is incorporated, it is necessary that the spirit should multiply itself, and that cannot multiply which has no quantity, and in the fourth place it is said that no rare body can move, if it has not a stable spot, whence it may take its motion, much more is it so when an element has to move within its own element which does not move of itself, excepting by uniform evaporation at the center of the thing evaporated, as occurs in a sponge squeezed in the hand held under water, the water escapes in every direction with equal movement through the openings between the fingers of the hand in which it is squeezed, as to whether the spirit has an articulate voice, and whether the spirit can be heard, and while hearing island and seeing, the wave of the voice passes through the air as the images of objects pass to the eye, non-entity. 1216. Every quantity is intellectually conceivable as infinitely divisible. Amid the vastness of the things among which we live, the existence of nothingness holds the first place, its function extends over all things that have no existence, and its essence, as regards time, lies precisely between the past and the future, and has nothing in the present. This nothingness has the part equal to the whole, and the whole to the part the divisible to the indivisible, and the product of the sum is the same whether we divide or multiply, and in addition as in subtraction, as is proved by arithmeticians by their tenth figure which represents zero, and its power has not extension among the things of nature, what is called nothingness is to be found only in time and in speech, in time it stands between the past and future and has no existence in the present, and thus in speech it is one of the things of which we say, they are not, or they are impossible. With regard to time, nothingness lies between the past and the future, and has nothing to do with the present, and as to its nature it is to be classed among things impossible, hence, from what has been said, it has no existence, because where there is nothing there would necessarily be a vacuum, 
Reflections on Nature 12-17-12-19-12-17. Example of the lightning in clouds. Almighty and once living instrument of formative nature. Incapable of availing thyself of thy vast strength thou hast to abandon a life of stillness and to obey the law which God and time gave to procreative nature. Ah, how many a time the shoals of terrified dolphins and the huge tiny fish were seen to flee before thy cruel fury. To escape, whilst thy me nations raised in the sea a sudden tempest with buffeting and submersion of ships in the great waves, and filling the uncovered shores with the terrified and desperate fishes which fled from thee, and left by the sea remained in spots where they became the abundant prey of the people in the neighborhood. O time, swift robber of all created things, how many kings, how many nations hast thou undone, and how many changes of states and of various events have happened since the wondrous forms of this fish perished here in this cavernous and winding recess. Now destroyed by time thou liest patiently in this confined space with bones stripped and bare, serving as a support and prop for the superimposed mountain. Footnote. The character of the handwriting points to an early period of Leonardo's life. It has become very indistinct, and is at present exceedingly difficult to decipher. Some passages remain doubtful. 1218. The watery element was left enclosed between the raised banks of the rivers, and the sea was seen between the uplifted earth and the surrounding air which has to envelope and enclose the complicated machine of the earth, and whose mass, standing between the water and the element of fire, remain much restricted and deprived of its indispensable moisture, the rivers will be deprived of their waters, the fruitful earth will put forth no more her light verdure, the fields will no more be decked with waving corn, all the animals, finding no fresh grass for pasture, will die and food will then be lacking to the lions and wolves and other beasts of prey, and to men who after many efforts will be compelled to abandon their life, and the human race will die out. In this way the fertile and fruitful earth will remain deserted, arid and sterile from the water being shut up in its interior, and from the activity of nature it will continue a little time to increase until the cold and subtle air being gone, it will be forced to end with the element of fire, and then its surface will be left burned up to cinder and this will be the end of all terrestrial nature. 1219. Why did nature not ordain that one animal should not lie by the death of another? Nature being in constant and taking pleasure in creating and making constantly new lives and forms, because she knows that her terrestrial materials become thereby augmented, is more ready and more swift in her creating, than time in his destruction, and so she has ordained that many animals shall be food for others, nay, this not satisfying her desire, to the same end she frequently sends forth certain poisonous and pestilential vapors upon the vast increase and congregation of animals, and most of all upon men, who increase vastly because other animals do not feed upon them, and, the causes being removed, the effects would not follow. This earth therefore seeks to lose its life, desiring only continual reproduction, and as, by the argument you bring forward and demonstrate, like effects always follow like causes, Animals are the image of the world, XX, humorous writings, just as Michael Anglo's occasional poems reflect his private life as well as the general disposition of his mind, we may find in the writings collected in this section, the transcript of Leonardo's fanciful nature, and we should probably not be far wrong in assuming, that he himself had recited these fables in the company of his friends or at the court festivals of princes and patrons. Irritanto Piacevolmela Conversazione so relates Vizari Che Tiro Southeast Gliani Miguel Genti, 
and Paulus Jovieu says in his short biography of the artist, Fiat Ingenio Valdecomi, Natido, liberally, Volchuotum lunch venustissimo, et cum elegantia omnis deliciarum que maxim theatralium mirificus inventoresi arbitreset, a delirem citocaneret, cunctis par omnemitatum principibus mire placet, there can be no doubt that the fables are the original offspring of Leonardo's brain, and not borrowed from any foreign source, indeed the schemes and plans for the composition of fables collected in Division V seem to afford an external proof of this. If the fables themselves did not render itself evident, several of them for instance number L279 are so strikingly characteristic of Leonardo's views of natural science that we cannot do them justice till we are acquainted with his theories on such subjects, and this is equally true of the prophecies. I have prefixed to these quaint writings the studies on the life and habits of animals which are singular from their peculiar atheristic style and I have transcribed them in exactly the order in which they are written in this H. This is one of the very rare instances in which one subject is treated in a consecutive series of notes. All in one is and Leonardo has also departed from his ordinary habits. By occasionally not completing the text on the page it is begun. These brief notes of a somewhat mysterious bearing have been placed here, simply because they may possibly have been intended to serve as hints for fables or allegories. They can scarcely be regarded as preparatory for a natural history, rather they would seem to be extracts. On the one hand the names of some of the animals seem to prove that Leonardo could not here be recording observations of his own, on the other hand the notes on their habits and life appear to me to dwell precisely on what must have interested him most so, far as it is possible to form any complete estimate of his nature and tastes. In number 1293 lines 110. We have a sketch of a scheme for grouping the prophecies. I have not however availed myself of it as a clue to their arrangement here because, in the first place, the texts are not so numerous as to render the suggested classification useful to the reader, and, also, because in reading the long series, as they occur in the original, we may follow the author's mind, and here and there it is not difficult to see how one theme suggested another. I have however regarded Leonardo's scheme for the classification of the prophecies as available for that of the fables and jests, and have adhered to it as far as possible. Among the humorous writings I might perhaps have included the riduses, of which there are several in the collection of Leonardo's drawings at Windsor, it seems to me not likely that many or all of them could be solved at the present day and the NSS, throw no light on them. Nor should I be justified if I intended to include in the literary works the well-known caricatures of human faces attributed to Leonardo of which, however, it may be incidentally observed, the greater number are in my opinion undoubtedly spurious, to only have necessarily been given owing to their presence in text, which it was desired to reproduce, volume, by page 326, and place CXXII. It can scarcely be doubted that some satirical intention is conveyed by the drawing on place LXIV text number 688. My reason for not presenting Leonardo to the reader as a poet is the fact that the maxims and morals in verse which have been ascribed to him, are not to be found in the manuscripts, and Professor Uzielli has already proved that they cannot be by him. Hence it would seem that only a few short verses can be attributed to him with any certainty. I studies on the life and habits of animals. 1220. The love of virtue. The goldfinch is a bird of which it is related that, when it is carried into the presence of a sick person, if the sick man is going to die, the bird turns away its head and never looks at him, 
But if the sick man is to be saved the bird never loses sight of him but is the cause of curing him of all his sickness. Like unto this is the love of virtue. It never looks at any vile or base thing, but rather clings always to pure and virtuous things and takes up its abode in a noble heart, as the birds do in green woods on flowery branches. And this love shows itself more in adversity than in prosperity, as light does, which shines most where the place is darkest. 1221. Envy. We read of the kite that, when it sees its young ones growing too big in the nest, out of envy it pecks their sides, and keeps them without food. Cheerfulness. Cheerfulness is proper to the cock, which rejoices over every little thing, and crows with varied and lively movements. Sadness. Sadness resembles the raven, which, when it sees its young ones born white, departs in great grief, and abandons them with doleful lamentations, and does not feed them until it sees in them some few black feathers. 12.22. Peace. We read of the beaver that when it is pursued, knowing that it is for the virtue contained in its medicinal testicles and not being able to escape, it stops, and to be at peace with its pursuers, it bites off its testicles with its sharp teeth, and leaves them to its enemies. Rage. It is said of the bear that when it goes to the haunts of bees to take their honey, the bees having begun to sting him he leaves the honey and rushes to revenge himself, and as he seeks to be revenged on all those that sting him, he is revenged on none, in such wise that his rage is turned to madness, and he flings himself on the ground, vainly exasperating, by his hands and feet, the foes against which he is defending himself. 1223. Gratitude. The virtue of gratitude is said to be more developed in the birds called hoopers which, knowing the benefits of life and food, they have received from their father and their mother, when they see them grow old, make a nest for them and brood over them and feed them, and with their beaks pull out their old and shabby feathers, and then, with a certain herb restore their sight so that they return to a prosperous state. Everest, the toad feeds on earth and always remains lean, because it never eats enough. It is so afraid lest it should want for earth. 1224. Ingratitude. Pigeons are a symbol of ingratitude, for when they are old enough no longer to need to be fed, they begin to fight with their father, and this struggle does not end until the young one drives the father out and takes the hen and makes her his own. Cruelty. The basilisk is so utterly cruel that when it cannot kill animals by its baleful gaze, it turns upon herbs and plants, and fixing its gaze on them withers them up. 1225. Generosity. It is said of the eagle that it is never so hungry but that it will leave a part of its prey for the birds that are around it, which, being unable to provide their own food, are necessarily dependent on the eagle, since it is thus that they obtain food. 